Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to keep on through 1 Peter. And uh, I'm only going to teach the first 11 verses, but I want to read the whole chapter because I think it is one major theme. And then uh, should Matt decide to go back and um, go into a greater depth next Sunday, he may do that. But I want to uh, look specifically at the first 11 verses, but let me read 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, straight through through the ESV version. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Here he goes talking about suffering again. Peter has a one-track mind in this book. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, in other words, kind of like a college dorm. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him Belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer 
according to God's will, interesting, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we come to you in humility today. We come to you in dependency again today. We come to you in faith today with thankfulness that we are your people, that we have the privilege of knowing you and loving you and serving you. And we open our hearts to you today. We bear our hearts to you today before you, Lord. Though you know them, it does us good <clears throat> to choose to bear them. And so we do. We, we choose today to bear our hearts before you. Speak to us through your word, we pray, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've entitled this morning's teaching, Armed with Purpose, which is what some of the translations say in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, ESV says. Others say arm yourselves with purpose, with the same purpose. And so I was asking myself this week, what is the purpose? What is the purpose? What is Peter getting at? What is he trying to say to us? What is, what is this purpose that we are to arm ourselves with? I had an interesting experience this week as I was praying and reading and thinking. I, was, I, just, I don't know if you guys have this happen to you once in a while where you become so conscious of the... Um, what's the word I want to use? Of the not just the greatness, but of the peculiarity, I guess, in a sense, of believing in God. It's, it's almost as though you go, this God, this God that we believe in is so great and so beyond our comprehension and yet so real to us. It's like you go, this is an interesting life that we live. And it's almost as though we take it for granted so easily that we lose that sense of awe and that, that sense of wonder in, in, the, in terms of who God is and what he has done for us. I don't know if you ever have those kinds of experiences. It's interesting. Once in a while, God will do that with me. As I was thinking about this issue of purpose and what the purpose that Peter is referring to, and as I prayed about this text this week, I was telling Kath yesterday that when I was a young pastor, what I really, all I wanted to do is I just wanted to teach the text. You know, I wanted to go through Hebrews or through Ephesians or through whatever text, and I wanted to do a good job, and I still do, obviously, but I wanted to just teach the text so the church understood the text. But today, now, when I pray and when I teach, I, my thinking is more, what does the Holy Spirit want to say to the church? Lord, what are you wanting to say tomorrow or next Sunday to the church out of this that will grip our hearts and will move us in, in a spirit into something more eternally than just understanding the words that were written? And this was a tough chapter for me to wrap my mind and heart around, I'll be honest, because it would be easy for me to go through and teach just the text. I could do that easily. But what was it that God wanted to say was more difficult for me to discern? But I really believe that I've gotten it, at least to some degree for today. I read a quote this week, and I can, if you can put it up for me, 
a number of quotes by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know who he is. He died 30-something, five years old, just before the end of World War II. He was executed by the Nazis almost out of spite because of what he had planned to do in the attempted assassination of Hitler. And so just before as the war was ending and he was imprisoned, rather than releasing him, they just killed him. But he wrote prolifically during his time as a Lutheran pastor. And then from prison, he wrote a lot of books. If you've ever read The Cost of Discipleship, it's a classic. I strongly encourage you to read it. But he wrote this, and I thought this was so much in line with what this text this week is about. He said, we have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key. Now listen carefully. A more effective key a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. Interesting thinking that suffering is more effective in helping us to get to the the depths, to explore the, the realities and the, and the reasons and the depths in thought and in, 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 in our lives, in our behavior, then it, it, it helps us to get to the core issues much more readily than personal good fortune. In other words, to live without or to live with the suffering that comes with living in the world is healthier for your soul than excess. So hard to get through the layers of our hearts. I don't know about you, but it is for me. It's so hard to get through the layers of my heart, to get through the layers of my mind, my thinking, to get through the layers of my affections. To get to the core of what really is most important and real. It's a continual battle for me to get to the essence of what is real. I, I was thinking this morning as I was outside, I was praying. I was praying and I just said, Lord, I, I want to know who I really am. I, I, I don't feel like I ever really yet have lived out who I really am. Now, I know in one sense that's not fully true, but you know what I'm trying to get at is that, is that I, I think that the longer we walk with God and the more we know God and the closer we get to God and that we, one day when we stand before God, we will know who we really are. And who we really are will be seen and evident to all. It'll be glorious. But why not try to find that now? I think that's the heart of God. But we have to be reduced. We have to be stripped of everything that comes between us and these greater issues of life. And I think that Peter is telling us and teaching us that suffering is one of the ways and one of the primary ways that God allows that to happen in us, to reduce us, to strip us down, to take away that which is unimportant and leave us with what really only counts in life. And I'll tell you, we know this to be a fact in 21st century America, that's a difficult thing because there are so many things that will rob us of the true essence of realities of what's important in life. Bonhoeffer also said this. 
He said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. And so we have to think about everything that we value in life and ask ourselves, is this really what's important? Or am I wasting my life's energies on the things that don't matter ultimately? Of course, life is, has to be lived, and there are all sorts of, all sorts of menial and very practical and uh, types of things that we do from day in, day out, that we would look at them and go, well, this doesn't really matter. And we, it's part of life, and we do that, and we have to do that. But I'm talking about your affections. I'm talking about the, the, the things that, 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 that God wants to strip away from our hearts and from our thinking that we continually resist because it costs us and it's too hard to give up. And this is what Peter is getting at in this chapter, I really believe. And so he begins with these words in verse 1, So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with this same purpose. And we're getting now to the essence of what the purpose is. Why Christ suffered, obviously we know he suffered to pay the price for sin, but he did it for another reason. You see, not only did Christ die for us, he lived for us. We often forget that. We often forget that he lived a life that was exemplary for us, is what it meant to be a man. And, and the essence of that life can be summed up in one word, obedience. And that obedience was incredibly costly to him. Not just because he went to the cross that day, but it cost him every single day of his life that he chose to deny himself rather than give in to his own desires. He lived a life of obedience as an example. He, before he could die for us, he had to live before us. And so Peter says, arm yourselves. The Greek words for arm yourselves were used of a Greek soldier putting on his armor and taking his weapons. It's the noun that is used of a heavy armed, heavily armed foot soldier who carried a pike and a large shield. Kath and I just this week watched um, Hunger Games again. I only watched the first one years and years ago, and I wasn't even that interested. But I was cracking up when I was watching because Katniss, she got through with a bow and arrow against all sorts of heavily armed uh, people in the capital, you know, and the enemy. That's not reality. You have to be heavily armed to survive in a war, in a battle, if you're going into combat. You have to be able to protect and to take ground. And it's being contrasted against that of a, a lightly armed troop. Peter could have used a different word when he's talked about arming yourselves, but the Holy Spirit, I believe, put it in his heart to use this word, which spoke of being heavily, heavily armed. In other words, what Peter was getting at was how we think about all of this that we call Christianity. Our church life. Our faith, listen, is a battle of our minds. It is a battle in our minds, and it is a battle for our minds. 
It's a battle that, that originates in our minds. And it is, is a battle of our mind to take con control of it. And it is a battle for our minds because of the enemy's desire to rob us of the truth. And then Peter makes this amazing statement in, in verse 1. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Very difficult text, very controversial text. What is Peter trying to say? He's getting to the heart of the issue. He isn't saying that we're going to live perfect. He's not saying that we're going to live sinless if we suffer. But what he is saying, listen, is that if we are, as believers are willing, and I'm going to define this suffering in a moment, if we're willing to suffer, to pay the price of following Jesus in this world, listen, the nerve center of sin is severed in our lives. Obedience to Christ severs the nerve center of sin in your life. If you're tired of the nagging sin, the nagging jealousy, the nagging covetousness, the nagging pride, the nagging lusts, live in obedience. Live in obedience. And that will be severed. Say to the Lord when he speaks to you, when he asks of you, yes, Lord. Say to the sin, no. When we live our lives it, with the grace of God in a desire to live in obedience, it severs. This is what Peter is saying, that suffering has its way of dealing with sin in the human life. Interesting. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, although we'll never be totally free from sin in this life, that's not the point. When we endure suffering for the sake of Christ, we show that the purpose of our lives is not to live for ourselves, but it is, to, it is to live according to the will of God and for the glory of God. So we're not talking about sinlessness. We're talking about living free from sin's Attraction to us from sin's power over us. And of course, Bonhoeffer would have understood this very readily as he wrote from prison. And Paul would have understood this fully as he wrote from his prison cell. And he wrote these words to the Philippian church. He said, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You see, these men understood this truth, that their suffering was working something in them that was priceless. Because God wants to get to the heart of the issue. Not only does he want to get to the heart of the issue, this is more important perhaps. He wants us to get to the heart of the issue for us. God knows my heart. He knows your heart. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He says to us today, do you know them? Do you want to know them? Or are you afraid to admit to them? 
Are you afraid to look at them? Because that's been who you've been forever. Because it's become part of your own identity in your mind. But it isn't who you really are. Will you open your heart? Will you bear your heart to me? I know your heart. Will you look at it yourself? You see, being willing to suffer in this way is the great detox for the Christian life from the world and its effects. And Peter goes on in this chapter and he says, it's not suffering, not, not suffering due to foolishness, not suffering due to obnoxiousness, not suffering due to any sin that you are now bearing the consequences of. That's not what he's talking about. It's the suffering that comes simply because you believe and you will not compromise that which you believe. And you will say yes to God and no to your own desires as often by the grace of God as you can on a daily, even an hourly, even a moment-by-moment basis. Suffering is the great detox. And the Christian life in America is an anti-suffering life. Now, when we speak of suffering, we right away go to, we go to persecution. Oh, they're going to come and we're going to get persecuted. No, that's not even what Peter is talking about. I think he's talking about what Bonhoeffer was talking about. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following. And if it leads to persecution, so be it. But before it leads to that, it's going to lead to daily a cross. Jesus said, didn't he? And the cross is denial of self. And my self-life hates it. My self-life wants to live. My self-life wants to survive. My self-life has its own rights. Paul will give us three examples, excuse me, Peter gives us three examples in this text that I want to look at this morning quickly, not quickly, but is not as in-depth as we need to. And the first is found in verses 3 through 4. Our true identity now as the new creation. We've been speaking of this for years This, he says now, is an example of what he's meaning when he's talking about this purpose. Our identity is a new creation. And he goes on in these verses, verses 3 and 4, and he says, Listen, listen, brothers and sisters, you've had enough time in the past to live as an unbeliever. You've had enough time to live that way. The time is over. He says the word past, the tense of this word past in the Greek is the perfect participle of a verb that means this. The course is closed and done. And now you look back upon it as an accomplished fact. It's over. I can sit in my backyard and smell the guys down the street smoking pot. And in my flesh, I like the smell. But the Lord says to me, that time is past. You've had enough time. And you can apply that to whatever else you want to apply it to. Do you ever wonder, why do I I want to do this? And why do I want to watch that? Or why do I allow myself? It's because of the flesh, that, that thing within us that is still not yet sanctified, that is being dealt with by the Spirit of God. But we cater to it. And Peter's saying, no, the time has passed of you doing that. Come on. 
And the reason is, is because now, as Annie spoke so clearly today, it's time to rise up. Rise up, rise up, rise up. As a Christian, we've, we have to view our lives before conversion as a closed matter. For some of you kids that are in this room that, who were born into a Christian home, thank God, and all you've known is a Christian experience, thank God. You may not have that kind of thinking of a past life, but if you're honest with yourself, you know your hearts. And you know what sin is and what conviction is and what a conscience is. And so the Holy Spirit says to all of us, the time has passed of catering to those tendencies in your heart that you know grieve God. Paul teaches us in Romans that we have died with Christ and have been raised now to newness of life. He says in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, old things have passed away, all things have become new. Now, old habits, old friends who pull away, who pull us away. Old places that we used to go, the old haunts that we used to be in. Those, it's time now, you're through with those, Peter's saying. And he gets very specific in describing some of these things in, in verses 4, in verse 3. Sensuality, he says, passions. For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Not just Gentile ethnically, but he's talking about unbelievers. What unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, drunkenness, passions, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. I was struck when I read this about how the fact that three of these have to do with sexual sin. Sensuality is unbridled lust, shamelessness. Passions is a selfish desire for that which is forbidden. Orgies, we know what orgies are. Why are three of the five, or at least three of the four, dealing with sexual sin? Because that is where a battle is in the human existence. Let's not fool ourselves. The Holy Spirit understands your temptations. He understands your vulnerabilities as a man or as a woman. But there is victory, there's hope. And part of the means of severing that nerve center is to say, Lord, I want to live in obedience. I want to obey you by your grace. And it's going to to cause suffering to my soul. It's going to cause me to suffer when I look at this and I see it for what it really is and I'm sick of it and I cry out to you and yet I say, Lord, I will obey you even if it costs me. We want to cater to those old fainting past pleasures still. No, the time has passed, Peter says. And he says, they're going to, with respect to this, the unbelievers are going to be surprised when you don't join them. And they're going to malign you. Surprise doesn't just mean they're going to think you're weird or you're odd or you're unusual. But it means this. It means foreign in nature. 
It's unnatural to an unbeliever for us as believers to say no to those things. Young people hear this. When you say, I want to follow and obey Christ, you will not be understood by your peers who do not know him. It's unnatural to them for you to say no to those things. But this is what it means to be a believer. And what's the purpose of it? What are we arming ourselves with? We're arming ourselves with obedience even to unto suffering so that we can get to the essence of who we really are. Don't you want to be who you really are? Don't you want the world to see who you really are? I do. And the next point that Peter makes is in verses 5 and 6. And it is this, that there is a reality and a certainty of a coming judgment and of eternity. And this, if there's anything that, that, that our minds and that the, especially the minds of unbelievers do not want to look at is this truth right here. You can talk about just about anything and, and, and talk about God and, you know, Christianity and life and so on. But when you start talking about judgment and eternity, tilt. They don't want to admit that that's possible or face the reality of that. But brothers and sisters, it is true. And listen to what he says. He says, but they, he says, they will malign you in the end of verse 4, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is one of the most contested truths today that could be preached. The reality of a coming judgment and of eternal ramifications based upon that judgment. All men will give an account one day. All men. And only those who have been forgiven because of their faith in something that happened 2,000 years ago with one man, solitary man, dying a horrible death in obedience to God's will. Only those who have put their faith in him will have life eternal. And those who stand before God on that day apart, apart from that faith, and therefore not being clothed in the righteousness that God gives through that faith to a man or a woman, in spite of themselves, undeserved. Anyone who stands on that day apart from that righteousness will experience eternal death. It's true. And that is not something that is easily spoken and it is not heard. Mm -hmm. 
there is a reality to the certainty of judgment and of eternity. And he says the gospel was preached to those who had died in faith. He's speaking of believers, of men and women who had died, who now were, uh, who had died in faith. And though they experienced in their physical bodies the result of man's sin, the body dies because of sin. They now live in the spirit as does God. So all of us go the way of man where our bodies will one day wear out. When you're young, you don't think it can happen, but believe me, it does. But on a daily basis, as a Christian, your spirit is being made more and more and more alive. And your soul, your, your mind and your will and your emotions are being healed, and they will live on before God. And then one day, that, that reality of who you are and your mind and your will and your emotions that has been completely healed and completely freed because of God's grace will be reunited with a perfect body for all eternity. I don't get it, but I love it. But many of these men that Peter is speaking of right now in this text had died as martyrs as did Bonhoeffer and the Apostle Paul and Peter himself. But now they're living in the presence of God as living spirits alive, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. Arming themselves with this purpose is suffering regarding these truths of the new creation life, our identity now, and then the reality of the certainty of judgment and of eternity. And then verses 7 through 11, he then speaks of this purpose as an example of being armed in terms of life now in the kingdom of God as seen. Primarily, he's speaking now in God's church. The kingdom has to become manifest, brothers and sisters, today on the earth. How will the reality of God become evident to unbelieving men through the church. How will the non-believer know that God exists? Through the church. is love for one another. Commitment to unseen things. Willingness to pay prices. Suffering as a disciple. And we've all experienced it at times, and we need to recognize that it is God's hand arming us, arming us. When, when, when you've been misunderstood by someone whom you loved that, that brought an accusation, and your first response was to rise up and defend yourself, rather than to do that, to say, no, Lord, tell me what in this is true because there must be some truth in this so that I can learn. When the Lord says to you to forgive that debt that you feel you have a right to, but he says, no, let it go. 
When your wife or your husband speaks something to you about your life or your behavior or your attitude, and rather than rising up in self-defense, you, you must say, Lord, teach me what's true. Let not our first response to defend self, but let it be to open our hearts, bear our hearts, and say, God, teach me. Arm me with the purpose that Christ was armed with, living in obedience. Sever, Lord, sever the nerve ending of sin. The central part, part of sin in my life. May I detox me, Lord, from the world through these things. Maybe it's a chronic sickness. Maybe it's that you don't get healed. And you cry out and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and God doesn't heal you. The Lord is reducing you to the things that are most important. Maybe you have a financial devastation and you lose what you think is really most valuable and the Lord is using it to reduce us and leave us with what really is most important. I can remember more than one time Kath and I financially <laughs> trusting God, sitting down to eat, praying, and looking at her, and I would say to her, babe, when all is said and done, if we lose everything, we have each other, and we have the Lord, and we have our kids. They can't take these away from us. And those things become then what's most valuable. Life in the kingdom as seen in God's church. And he reminds us in this as I close here that the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. He doesn't mean that, I don't think Peter means necessarily that Christ will return in a few hours or a few days or even weeks or months necessarily. But what he means is that, listen, all of the major events in God's great plan of redemption, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the spirit coming have been accomplished. There's nothing left that has to be done now. We're just waiting. We're not waiting for the cross. We're not waiting now for the resurrection. We're not waiting for the ascension. We're not waiting for the spirit of God to fall on the church. Now it's all accomplished. It's all finished. Now we're just waiting for his return. We don't know when he'll come back. And so we live with great anticipation knowing that it is at hand. Nothing needs to happen before he returns now. That's amazing. And so we must remain sober, he says. Stay sober. Be self-controlled. Be of sound mind. It means calm, collected in spirit. Say the word calm with me. Brothers and sisters, be calm. Don't be anxious. Don't be agitated. Don't be fearful. Calm, collected in spirit, peaceful, quiet, because we know God is faithful and God is in control. Amen? But be awake. 
Be peaceful, be calm, be collected, but be awake. Be watchful. What's happening? What are you speaking, Lord? What are you doing? What are you wanting me to hear? And what are you wanting me to know? What do you want to speak to the church today? And then he closes this section in verses 8 through 11. And he says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of funkiness. And there's a lot of funkiness in the church because we're people. So give each other a break. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love each other in spite of. Don't hold grudges. Don't get angry and then bitter, embittered. Don't get hurt and then embittered. Love each other earnestly because love covers up all the funkiness. And show hospitality. Open your hearts. Open your homes. Open your wallets. Open your lives to one another. Open yourself up to one another. Let people in to your life. Let them see who you really are. Be honest enough about who you aren't so that they find out who you are. Don't pretend. Don't put on your best face. Don't be religious. Just be real. Be you. Be godly. Don't be crass. But, but just be you. Don't drink too much. Don't get crazy. Enjoy life, love life, but be self-controlled. Arm yourselves with this purpose. The same way Christ did to live in obedience to God. And then lastly, he says this, and this is a whole series in and of itself. And as each one of you in verse 10 has received a charisma, charismata, gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's multifaceted grace. Peter takes one verse with a few words to do it. Paul took two chapters to do. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, teaches on these charismata. Peter just says it falls into two categories, speaking and serving. Whichever one you have, whatever God wants to do with you, be obedient to it. This is so important that I don't want to Cut, cut it short in this sense. The Spirit of God wants to come upon the church in our day. The Spirit of God wants to build something on the earth that will be undeniably God's people. It only happens by the grace of God through one another. It happens through suffering, through trial, through obedience, but it happens through the Spirit of God through each other Building the church up. Commit yourselves to the church. Commit yourselves to seeing the church become all that she could be. Brothers and sisters, the world will not know that he is alive except through the church. 
the kingdom of God will be seen through the church. The reign of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, the power of God will be evident through the church on the earth. And if we understand the importance of the church, this is such a heart cry of mine. If the church can understand its importance, it will keep us from the temptation of self-preservation and keep us from the temptation of living individual lives. It keeps us from the spirit of the age that emphasizes personal preference as our rights. That's just the spirit of the age's lie. To deny ourselves is very costly. To be committed to the church is very costly. But I believe that we are to arm ourselves with that purpose of a commitment that is uncommon today to one another, to love, hospitality, and to obedience in the Spirit. May this building be filled with the presence of God as we gather. Not just because we've sung good songs that morning, but because when we walk through that door, we walk through as those who have armed ourselves with an eternal purpose. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please. Lord, all of our hearts long to be who we really are, who you've really created us to be, not who we think we are, who we pretend to be. Maybe some of us are much further along than others in this. Probably those among us who are the most humble and the most genuine are further along. Some of us have a long way to go in this. But Lord, it's your desire that we would bear our hearts before you so we might see as you see us and that we would be willing to do it before one another. Lord, we believe that kindness will come from this obedience through genuineness, through humility, through obedience to you. That we will become more calm and more peaceful and more quiet-spirited, but yet bold and watchful and sober. Lord, there's so many dichotomies in these things, it's hard for our minds to grasp them. Some of them seem contradictory, but they're not. This is the reality of the gospel. Thank you for eternity, Lord. Thank you that this life isn't all there is. Thank you that this life, Lord, is only the beginning how important it is. We're grateful. Continue to teach us, Lord, even as this theme of this book has been to stand firm, help us to stand firm as we arm ourselves with suffering and with the same purpose that Christ did. In Jesus' name, amen.